What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. feminist sports podcast you need. We are so happy you're here. This week, our panel includes Lindsay Gibbs in Washington, D.C., Brenda Elsie in New York, and me, I'm Jessica Luther, in the middle of Hurricane, well, I guess now it's Tropical Storm, Harvey here in Austin, Texas. We have a great show for you this week. College football started this past weekend. Charlie Strong, former head football coach at the University of Texas, got his first win at his new gig when the University of South Florida beat San Jose State. But the big games are coming up this weekend. Number one, Alabama will play number three, Florida State in Atlanta. Florida will meet Michigan in Arlington, Texas. BYU will go up against LSU, Texas A&M against UCLA, and Ohio State will take on Indiana. College football is back. This week, we will talk about college football head coaches, the money they pull down, the power they wield, the choices they make. Then we'll talk about one specific aspect, sexual violence. And Lindsay interviews Ava Wallace, a beat writer for the Washington Post who used to cover UVA football and has recently written about black athletes in Charlottesville. Let's get into it. Lindsay, want to start us off on head football coaches? (laughs) I would love to. You know how much I love this topic, Jess. So, you know, college football season means it's time to look back at the USA Today database of college football salaries, which USA Today does a great job of keeping. Our newest highest paid coach in the college football is Nick Saban, who will earn about $11.125 million this season after a contract extension. Then you've got Jim Harbaugh over in Michigan, who's got $9 million a year coming, and the list just goes on from there. Of course, with money comes power, and with power and money comes corruption. And this week alone in the news, we've had Hugh Freeze at Old Miss, and we've had records showing that he called at least a dozen escort services from his Old Miss phone. We have other controversies, such as Jim Harbaugh in Michigan just refusing to release the Michigan football roster to the point that journalist or FOIAing, which is a that means Freedom of Information Act, which means they're literally like having to go through the legal system to request the roster, which is just ridiculous. And you also have tons of coaches who are once again, as always, doing and saying stupid and insensitive and just plain wrong things when it comes to violence against women. We'll get more into that in the next segment. But I want to just start off with all of this money and all of this power that these coaches wield. Brenda, you're in academics. I know you have some thoughts on this, so take it away. Some very sad and angry thoughts, mostly. (laughs) Look, university administrations justify these expenses, these really high salaries. And it's not just the coaches. It's also the athletic directors and a whole team of people that go with them. 
They justify them by saying that these programs make money, whether through student recruitment, contracts, ticket sales, whatever it may be. And that college programs, college football programs in particular, are profitable is an untruth, and it's told to justify an enormous burden. So I'd like to just, from the very outset, argue with the very premise that these make money. And this isn't, it's not like something I'm coming up with. I mean, there's plenty of of evidence on this. And basically what they do is the vast majority of college football programs, not even to mention the athletic programs, don't make any money and are subsidized by student fees. These students rarely understand, sometimes they do, that the increase in university tuition, which has been astronomical since the early 2000s, is in some significant part because of athletics. Only eight athletic programs make enough to cover their own expenses. By the way, that does not include University of Alabama. Bloomberg, right? This finance, yes, yeah, I know, right? I just, whew, yeah, breathe, I'm sorry. Breathe. I'm sorry for okay. all of that information because it hurts me even to report it. But Bloomberg has even said, look, don't even look at the college football coaches' salaries. Look at the burden that they're carrying in terms of debt. Now, let's just stick on University of Alabama here. Their athletics program owes $225 million over the next 28 years. What? Yup. Yup. So it's not only students taking out loans to pay for athletic programs. It's athletic programs taking out loans to pay for athletic programs. So salaries like savings are incredible to me. And they must be put really honestly in the general context of over the last 20 years, an attack on university professor salary, benefits, and tenure. So let me just give you an idea, because a lot of people don't know what university professors might make or what that's like. If you're lucky enough to land a full-time job at University of Alabama, which means you're really, you've done a lot of work and you've had a lot of just good fortune, you make $80,000 a year. That means you could hire 138 professors full-time to replace Saban. So can you just tell me that he's good enough of a coach that he does a better job than 138 PhDs? I just (laughs) just like throwing it out out there, the ridiculousness of this. The president of University of Alabama doesn't even clear $800,000. And just one last thing, and I promise I'll give it up after this. Most schools with the highest alumni giving, like, so so you'll make this argument and administrators will look at you besides thinking you're super lame and boring and you hate football, which is also not true, not true, not true, is that they'll say, look, the alumni giving is so high. But you know what? The highest rates of alumni giving happen at universities without college football programs. So. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I don't even know what to do with all I'm that. Sorry. I mean, <laughs> you can't even say it. Like that is all of that is so ridiculous. And like I think about Saban and even Harbaugh, but Nick Saban, he's in Alabama. You know, they've had huge cuts in the state budget to education generally within the state. And then he is now. And I think it's just important that we keep saying this, like he is the highest paid public employee in this country. And as far as head coaches, you have to go to Europe and find soccer managers to find people who are paid more than Nick Saban is to coach an athletic team. And he is supposed to be an educator. Nick Saban was not hired by a football team. Nick Saban was hired by a university. And so the entire thing, I mean, and then put that in context with what Brenda just told us about the actual money and debt. And I don't, 
I don't even understand how this is justified. I have, I, I'm at a loss for words, you guys. It just bothers me to no end when we, when we really parse it out. Yeah. And speaking of parsing it out, I just want to go down this USA Today database just a little bit more. Okay. So you've got seven coaches this season making $5 million or more, 20 making $4 million or more, 36 making $3 million or more, 58 making $2 million or more, and 72 making $1 million or more. So this goes down. And if you're thinking to yourself, wow, that must be a lot of championship winning football programs. <laughs> we know what you're going to say. So many bowls. Then I have some news for you. <laughs> so later you'll hear my interview with Ava Wallace about the UVA football program. And we were talking about how last year they had a 2-10 season. So I was curious to see what Ooh. the head coach of UVA who steered that wonderful 2-10 and 10 season that must have given the alumni such pride. He made $3.275 million last year, Bronco Mendenhall. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. And it's not just the head coaches. It's the assistant coaches are making way more money than they used to make. Athletic directors are making way more money than they used to make. Like All of the coaching salaries and the athletic salaries are just going up and up and up and up. And... I, I don't know. I feel like I'm just going to repeat myself. Like, I just don't understand how we're justifying this as a university and educational expense that makes any kind of sense. I mean, just to throw it out there, I'm not even sure this is even setting aside and bracketing a lot of other issues that college football has that we'll get to. But is it not antithetical to the mission of the university to promote a sport that we know hurts minds? In itself, I mean, there's even an ethical question about that, and then much less to have these resources just being swallowed up. Yeah, and then you get these weird power dynamics on campus, right? So as you, as Brenda said, like at Alabama, you know, Saban is making way more money than the university president. Like, you know, the, the official hierarchy isn't actually the money hierarchy. And so you get like coaches doing all kinds of weird stuff and getting away with it all the time, right? Like there's no one really paying attention to what they're doing. They are, you know, purposely not paying attention to what they're doing. Lindsay, can you like tell us a little bit about Hugh Freeze? Like, I don't feel like I understand completely like what has gone on there. <laughs> Do you have any more on that? You know, it's just a mess. I mean, look, it's full of the Ole Miss scandal. They're just looking into all these recruiting violations, some of which are violations such as, you know, giving a star player $800 so like his mom can pay an electricity oh. bill, which heaven forbid, you know, oh, the horror. Right, right. But of course, there's there's a lot of stuff with, I mean, the typical stuff, right? Unfortunately, you know, the calling escorts, you know, the manipulation of finances, the going behind players' backs to, you know, get them loot and you know fancier things than utility bills but i don't know i mean Ole miss has given themselves a one year bowl postseason ban hoping that that will soften the blow here for the ncaa but of course more information is coming out and i think this is probably just the tip of the iceberg basically it seems that Ole miss is going to be the next school that's going to be made an example of and you know, right or wrong. I don't know. You know, part of me feels like they're just doing what everyone else is doing. And some of this stuff isn't, yeah, me isn't stuff that should be punished for. 
But of course, I don't like right. the idea of, you know, calling escort services for your recruits either. So, you know, it's yeah. a little bit of both. But basically, because of Laramie Tunzel, who I don't know if you guys remember the bong mask that oh, during photo the draft. that came out during the draft, that like photos were leaked of him in a bong mask during the draft. And yeah. then there were texts leaked about Old Miss giving him money. And so that being on such a big stage, that scandal for Ole Miss happening on such a big stage has basically made the NCAA determined to get them. Oh, man. And so to get into the fun stuff, then, Brenda, do you want to sort of give us an idea of where we are right now with, I guess, stories around sexual violence in college football? I feel like this is the... The never-ending topic, but that might be well, my own bubble that I live in. <laughs> a bad bubble. A persistent theme in college football then, and I say this with a lot of distress, is the subject of sexual assault. We've talked a lot about it on this show. We have two people you know, with me today that, that write a lot about it. Since the beginning of last school year, we have seen what seems to be some positive developments. The NCAA's adoption of a sexual assault policy and Indiana universities enacting a ban on athletes who have been convicted of felony domestic violence or sexual assault. But at the same time, Baylor's first day of school coincided with another Title IX lawsuit and new cases, which we've already mentioned in brief, have occurred in college football programs. Jessica, it's been a year since your book, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape, came out. Have things changed? Oh, this is a good question. I'm actually asked this a lot. And so it's, you know, I don't know. (laughs) Yes and no. So I feel in the last year, we had two head football coaches of winning programs fired for issues around sexual violence, right? We had our Bryles at Baylor very famously, and then Tracy Clays at Minnesota was fired last December before he fired after the bowl game i think he was it was his team that boycotted after the university of minnesota had done an internal investigation found that 10 of the players had been involved in a sexual assault suspended those players before the bowl game the rest of the team decided to boycott the bowl game had a whole press conference it was a big thing and then someone leaked the report the actual investigation the university had done and then those players walked it back pretty quickly because the report is really difficult to read clays was kind of absent during all of that and then tweeted in support of the boycott it was all very it was handled very badly so we did have we've had two coaches fired of winning programs i think that's significant we've seen teams I don't think Indiana is the only athletic department. I feel like there's another one. I can't remember off the top of my head. And Indiana's, you know, mirroring what some conferences are doing as far as transfer players. Indiana's policy is a little bit deeper because it also involves freshmen that are incoming, whereas the SEC and the Big 12 and theirs are just transfer players that come in. These things seem significant. The NCAA policy doesn't really have teeth to it, so I'm not really... It's good. It's a symbolic good, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything on the ground. And then I'm just going to bring it up. You know, like most of the athletic staff or the football staff from Baylor is in new places. They've done the thing that coaches always do. They just transfer in somewhere else. So the defensive coordinator, he's at Arizona State this year. And then sort of famously, the offensive coordinator, Art Bryles' son, Kendall, is now at FAU coaching for Lane Kiffin. There was this whole brouhaha this week that... 
you know, Kendall went on the record saying that his dad, Art Bryles, has been helping unofficially. And then Kiffin said, no, 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 that's not happening. But like, I don't know who would hire Kendall Bryles and think he's not going to call his dad for help. So of course that's happening. I mean, it's just really hard for me to imagine that's not happening. I don't know. How do you guys feel about this? Lindsay, I know you've done a lot of work on this too. And, have, you know, very currently have done work on this. Like, how are you feeling about it? Optimistic is the wrong word <laughs> to use, yeah. but but it's not the it's not pessimistic. I would say if that makes sense, right? It, it's skeptical, yeah. but somewhat hopeful. I think we're seeing signs that, like you said, these two coaches being fired is probably something that would not have happened a few years ago. This stuff is getting more attention, and that's going to help. Not everything, and not immediately. But it is going to help. One of the things you mentioned, Jess, is this new NCAA sexual violence policy. And I did a piece for Think Progress on Brenda Tracy, who is an activist and survivor who just does so much great work going to schools and talking to these players and coaches about sexual violence and about what needs to be done. And, you know, she has this pledge and a lot of people say, well, it's just a pledge. What good can that do? And I say, well, you know what? It's better than no pledge, (laughs) you know, like it's better than, I agree. It's better than nobody coming and talking to these players. Right. I mean, she's very open about her story about being gang raped by football players a few decades ago. She's very open about that. She talks very frankly about it. And the fact that these players have to look at her and hear her story and put a face to it. I think that's very important. You know, it's not a guarantee, but it's important. And she's very brave for doing that work. It was actually her son who kind of spurred this whole sexual violence policy into action. He saw how upset his mother was getting during the Baylor, when all the news about Baylor was coming up. And he wrote a very powerful letter to the NCAA and to the Board of Governors. And within a year, they have enacted this policy. Now, Brenda herself says that she knows this doesn't have a lot of teeth. But once again, is is it better than nothing? I think so. I think it is. It, it basically just says that leaders on each campus, the school president, the athletics director, and the Title IX coordinator must attest annually that coaches, athletic administrators, and student athletes were educated in sexual violence prevention. So essentially, this is really getting on the books that this education is happening. There are now more resources available for this education to happen. And it's going to be open and public which schools are doing this education that's going to be, you know, presented. Whenever these scandals come up, you see a lot of passing of the buck, right? Well, I didn't know. Well, I didn't Mm -hmm. know. Well, they told this person. This helps in a small way get accountability for these programs. This is not a final step. Nobody should think the work is done. But I do think it's positive. Yeah. I mean, I'm so interested and I I loved your article on Brenda Tracy and the new policy. I guess what comes to my mind when I see this policy is the Title IX coordinators on campus are hopefully empowered by it. Hopefully they can use the policy to demand some accountability on the part of administrators for doing the educational work that they need to be doing with the student athletes and with the coaches and with the staff, the athletic staff. I hope that my ideal dream, like if if I was, you know, put on my rose-colored glasses and was the last optimist in the North, would be would be 
that the attention that athletics gets actually helps universities with their sexual assault policies and procedures writ large because they're not good either. So, you know, college athletics is a particular place where there's a a problem, (laughs) a huge problem, a crisis with sexual assault. But honestly, this is further and deeper even within universities. And so in my happiest optimistic moment it would be that somehow this attention and these steps that are being taken could help colleges writ large with accountability. Part of what's tricky here, though, is that I don't understand what the NCAA can do if somebody doesn't check these boxes of an online survey that they've educated their staff and administration in sexual assault. Yeah, I'm not sure they can do anything at this point. I do think it's more of a public accountability, right? I think it's more that if this makes it to the media, we will have, you know, someone at the university will have said that they did this work, whether or not they actually did it, right? So it's someone publicly attesting to it. But I don't, Lindsay, do you know? I don't think the NCAA can do anything at this point. No, right now the punishment part of this is still in the works, pretty much. What Brenda told me multiple times was, look, getting this passed in a year is lightning fast for the NCAA. The next step is to get bylaws. And she eventually wants something like the Indiana policy, although even more expansive than the Indiana policy, to be the NCAA bylaw about kind of banning sexually violent athletes, banning athletes with a history of violence against women. That's her end goal. But for right now, this policy is in place. And like I said, I think it's going to make it a lot harder for when these big investigations come down, when the next scandal happens, right? When these investigators are looking into it, or heaven forbid, any legal people are looking into it, it's going to be a lot harder for them to say we didn't know and to say we didn't know if they've signed a public pledge that says they did know, right? That says they were educated, that said they did tell everyone. So maybe in that way it can be useful. But the hope is that this is only the beginning. And Brenda said very clearly, I I really liked this quote she gave me, she said, because she's heard all the criticism and she understands completely that people are worried that this isn't going to that this has, doesn't have any teeth, that there's no punishment. There aren't, there aren't any sanctions with this. But her quote was, I always tell people you have to get in the car before you can drive. So maybe this policy is just getting in the car and that's okay. The point is, it's a step. Yeah, which is, I think that's also what she's doing with the pledge, right? Like going into these places and just getting them all to talk about it and actually like sign their name to something. There's a real symbolism to that. And then I think what Bren said is really important. Like, If you get athletes involved in an issue on a college campus, especially if you can get a D1 team or or a player from that team involved in an issue, that's huge, right? And when athletes speak out, these things matter. So, I mean, it's small, tiny steps. This is kind of how this is going to work. I think that's always one of the things that I talk about is that, you know, we want to fix this now. We need to mitigate harm immediately. Like, we know that violence is happening and then being you know, the reports of it are being squashed or ignored. But these fixes, like we're talking about cultural issues, are going to be slow. And one thing I just want to like leave us with, and I talked about this before, and 
when we were talking about head coaches, like these athletic officials at these universities are educators and that is what they are hired to do. Like, and their job is to take care of the student body, not just the players that are directly underneath them. And we should keep holding them accountable to that. It's, it's really important that as fans and as media, that that's the work that we're doing. And we constantly tell ourselves that that is what these people's jobs actually are. Lindsay, this week you got the opportunity to interview the Washington Post's Ava Wallace. What did you all talk about? Yeah, well, Ava Wallace, she's a very talented young sports reporter at the Washington Post. And a couple of weeks ago, when the violent white supremacist rally was unfolding in Charlottesville, right at the University of Virginia campus, Ava and I were actually both covering a Washington Mystics game at the time. And I remember her looking at me and just kind of being like, I should be there on campus because she had covered the UVA football team the prior season. And she was thinking about these athletes, these predominantly black athletes, and wondering how they were responding to this horrific violence and this horrific racism on their campus. So she wrote a great piece for the Washington Post where she talked to some of the current and former UVA athletes. And so I just called her up to talk about it. Okay, I am here with Ava Wallace. Ava is a sports reporter at the Washington Post. I know Ava pretty well from her tennis coverage, which you might hear she is currently at the U.S. Open, the USTA Center. So that's the background (laughs) noise you're hearing. Also know her from Washington Mystics. But she's covered the University of Virginia football team, which is why I'm talking to her this week. She wrote a really important piece called Charlottesville Prompts Black UVA Athletes to Reflect on Their Experience. And of course, by Charlottesville, she is referring to the violent white supremacist rally that happened, gosh, it seems like a month ago now, but it was just a little over a week ago in downtown Charlottesville, where you had Nazis marching and you had a one woman and then two police officers die. And Ava talked to some former and current UVA athletes about their experience. So Ava, I just wanted to to start with when you reached out to these former UVA players, were they surprised that this was something that could happen on their campus? Everybody I talked to was certainly shocked just because the events that had gone on were were shocking. I mean, it's weird on a college campus to see that type of violence and to have deaths of members of your community. But when I actually started talking to people and getting, you know, past the initial, I guess, shock and awe of it, people weren't totally surprised. A little bit of it was no one was surprised because of just the the kind of tenor of the country right now and, and what's happening. But a lot of players kind of on their own brought up, I mean, there's a reason these white supremacists and, and Klansmen and Nazis chose Charlottesville. Some people were saying that and, you know, they're targeting us as a progressive community. But a lot of other people were saying, you know, there's a there's history here. There's a reason that they chose this specific place, which is certainly in the South, but also kind of has a mixed history and a mixed tone about it. It's this supposedly really progressive university in this very complicated town situated in the South. Yeah, I know Thomas Jones was one of who's one of the more successful football players to come out of UVA, which yeah. isn't not a football school, but also isn't uh, you know no. <laughs> also isn't a football powerhouse. I would say, right? I think it's safe to say. But tell me a little bit about his story because you you opened up your piece with him, and he he graduated what I think ten years ago now. It's been a while since he's been on campus, maybe longer, but but he graduated in three years, and there was a reason for that. Yeah, I started with his story because it was it was really he just had such a powerful story to tell and he he wanted to let me know about it. It wasn't something I necessarily had to ask him when I was on the phone initially just to talk to 
Thomas Jones about what his thoughts were and his reactions. It was it was something that he brought up on his own, which honestly, in, in talking to athletes, is something that definitely makes you sit up and take notice. But he wanted to graduate from the University of Virginia in three years because of Thomas Jefferson, really. And and Thomas Jefferson, obviously the founder and, and pretty much architect of the University of Virginia, is still so revered on campus. Like I remember in 2016, I was there on his birthday and I was in downtown Charlottesville, kind of right around campus. And bars had like 25 cent shots all night, like in celebration of Thomas Jefferson's birthday. It's still very much a big thing there. And, and it is meaningful to the school and kind of in a, in a college way, you know, something that was once serious is now just part of the culture and maybe not necessarily something that students really realize what they're celebrating. But Thomas Jones is saying that's someone that was in the back of my mind every day, a slave owner who built the University of Virginia with slave labor. I wanted to prove a point to him. He's saying it might have not made sense to me, but in my mind every day, he was like sticking it to Thomas Jefferson saying, look at what I did in three years. I can graduate just like any white student and I can do it faster. Wow, that's pretty incredible. I just can't believe like, I can't like let this go. They were having like 25 cent shots on Thomas Jefferson's yeah, birthday. It was That is so inappropriate. <laughs> it was pretty wild to me too. I just, that was the first time I realized like, oh, this is definitely like a thing here. But every it was a beautiful day. And it, everything that is always said about Charlottesville being a gorgeous place and a gorgeous campus is so true. It was like this beautiful sunny day and all the students were out. And, and it, clearly it was like the beginning of a big night where all these bars were having deals and restaurants were having deals for Thomas Jefferson's birthday. Yeah, it was crazy. Did that bother you? I mean, you're, you know, you're a black woman and walking around these streets trying to do your job. And here they are like revering in this really like catty way. I just can't imagine how that would make you feel. It was one of those things. It was just kind of another thing, honestly, that like I checked off and obviously as a reporter I always tried to tape or always I thought was pretty successful in tabling my own kind of feelings about Charlottesville and and Virginia and the school itself and I am from Maryland so I was raised with a little bit of you know you're supposed to not like Virginia on the other side of the on the other side of the state line there but I always thought Charlottesville would have been a fascinating place to like anthropologically study it is even though it's only 100 miles from DC it is Southern culture down there. So it was kind of another thing that I checked off and I was like, oh, this was something that I noticed, something that maybe not might not have seemed super normal to me. It was just something that stood out. I was looking at the demographics of UVA and there were only 408 African-American men in undergraduate last year. And you've got to think a large portion of that are in athletics and in particular in the football team, you know? Yeah. What was it like covering? Was race something that was in your mind when you were covering the team last year? And were there racial dynamics at play? Because of course, it's not like last year, the country was in a really great place either. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm so glad you asked that question. So the whole reason that I, I guess the first time I kind of became aware of those racial implications on campus was last year, right after Colin Kaepernick first did his national anthem protest where he was kneeling. A little bit after that, the Virginia basketball team actually posted a photo where everybody on the team was kneeling on a practice court in Virginia, which had the Virginia logo on it. They were all kneeling and their arms were linked kind of in solidarity. And they put this online saying, we see this protest. We know what's going on. They didn't necessarily say they didn't come right out and say this is in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick. I mean, they're current students. I know they had thoughts on it, but, you know, they've got the NCAA hanging over their heads. But. It was something that they that they wanted to put out and say, we're aware of what's going on in the world. We might be on this college campus bubble and these athletes, but 
we're paying attention, basically, is what they were saying. And in having kind of conversations with a lot of the team leaders after that who are African-American, they were saying we felt it was important for us as black men on this campus to speak up and use our platform and say, you know, we're watching. And they wouldn't kind of nobody came out and said this is something that we're saying in you know, like I said, standing in solidarity with Kaepernick or saying we're being treated unfairly. It was nothing like that, but it was definitely, they made it clear to me that race and being at Virginia and being black athletes at Virginia and being black men with voices at Virginia was something that they thought about. And I was talking to a couple of basketball players and saying, you know, a lot of the athletes I've talked to have gone to Virginia and said that their really high graduation rate of African-Americans is something that attracted to them to the school and made them proud to go to UVA. But it kind of wrapped up in all of those conversations starting around, I guess, about a year ago last year. I was like, oh, yeah, these kids think about this a lot. This is something worth looking into. Yeah. Coach Mendenhall is the football coach. And last year was his first year with the team. And they didn't necessarily have a super successful season. I think just, just <laughs> no. two wins, if I'm correct. How do you feel like I know you're not on the beat this year, but just from that one year, mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on how much of a handle he has on this topic and maybe how the team will handle it going forward? Do you think we're going to see any any messages sent during their first game, which is against William and Mary next Saturday? Do you think there are going to be any signs of solidarity? I would be really surprised if we saw anything during a game that would could be potentially seen as, you know, players being distracted from the game at hand and, and everything like that. Things that colleges really are aware of and most college coaches certainly, Mendenhall included, is is something that he's really careful to say, no, we're we're totally locked in on this game on this particular week. But I think he does have a pretty good handle on it. I, I would assume so just because I know coming in as a new coach last year, he really took the time to listen to a lot of his players. And Micah Kaiser in particular, is, in particular is one player on the defense who is a total complete team leader and is a black man. And I know for a fact has stood up in front of the team after the after what happened in Charlottesville and said, you know, we're thinking about this. This is something on our minds. You have to listen to what we want to say. I know that he stood up in a team meeting in front of Mendenhall and said that. And kind of from that, after that, what I've been reading is something that really interested me was the quarterback, Kurt Mankert, who is white, was saying, yeah, I think about it and it's awful. But what we're worried about first is how our African-American and, and black teammates are feeling like we're feeling a certain way. And we know this affects those people in a completely separate way. Like and that I was like, I was really happy to see that kind of level of awareness about about how this can play out in different people's minds. Yeah, that is really good to hear. Wilson, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really good to hear your insight on this topic. And I'm so glad that you've been covering it. And I'm so jealous that you were in New York for the US Open. So we'll have to have <laughs> you back on. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Anytime. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, The Burn Pile, where we pile up all the things we've hated this week in sports and we set them aflame. Brenda, do you want to get us started? Sure. A brief admission. I was a cheerleader. <gasps> and it's a very, I know, I know. Brenda. I, I know. It's, let's keep it between us and our listeners. Like, okay. like thrown into the air, <laughs> tossed into the air, caught kind of cheerleading or like just on the ground, move your arms kind of cheerleading. A little bit of both with a lot of yelling. <laughs> All right. So, so that, uh, that's just a segue to explain 
my sympathy with the girls who were subjected to Denver coach Ozil Williams abuse over this past season in which this high school coach from Denver, it's getting a lot of press, forced girls into the splits, threatened them and physically pressured them to continue even after they were begging him to stop. And so I want to throw Williams' resume onto the burn pile, Williams' actions, especially because he's already been fired for the exact same thing at another school district. Whoa. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's, that's where I'm at. It's, I would like to throw all of that abuse of children by a cheerleading coach onto the burn pile. Burn. Wow. Lindsay, uh, what's on your burn pile this week? Well, something that is equally as serious, which is the U.S. Open schedulers, <laughs> or excuse me, the U.S. <laughs> Open draw. Sorry, I don't mean to make light of Brenda's horrible thing. I just didn't really know how to transition there. But anyways, <laughs> look, the U.S. Open, it's U.S. Open time. I love women's tennis. I love tennis, period. And two of my favorite players are Maria Sharapova and Simona Halep. Serena Williams fans, I can love Serena Williams and Maria Sharapova before I hear from you. I can love them both and it's okay. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Sharapova is coming back from an 18-month drug ban for Meldonium. And Simona Halep is the number two player in the world and has a great chance at being number one. At the end of this U.S. Open, they have a great rivalry. They played a fantastic French Open match. Maria Sharapova has dominated but i love the way their games match up but they got drawn together to play the first round and i'm so mad because these are two players i really want to see go deep at this tournament and i'm just really sad that it worked out that we're gonna have to lose one of them before the tournament really even begins by the time you guys hear this we will know who the winner is they're playing monday night on arthur ash Hope you all have watched and are mourning with me for whoever the loser is and throw those draws on the burn pile. (laughs) Burn. Burn. Oh, that's a bummer. And I didn't know about that. All right. So on Tuesday last week, the Boston Celtics traded point guard Isaiah Thomas to the Cleveland Cavaliers. I read this morning that maybe that's a little up in the air, whether or not the trade's going to happen. But Thomas has been with the Celtics since February 2015 and played so well for them that he made the NBA All-Star Game the last two years. In 2017, he led the Celtics to the first seed in the Eastern Conference. During the first round of playoffs, his sister China Thomas was tragically killed in a car accident. Isaiah laced up the next day to play for the Celtics, and they defeated the Chicago Bulls in that series. In Game 2 of the second round of the playoffs, he put up 53 points, the second highest total in Celtics playoff history. They won that series, too and then unsuccessfully played for the Eastern Conference Finals, during which Thomas was hurt with a hip injury. This is all to say, Isaiah Thomas did a lot for the Celtics. Then management decided to trade him to the Cavaliers, because basketball is a business, after all. And then Celtic fans burned Thomas's jersey. In the words of basketball god, and no stranger to jersey burning, LeBron James, who took to Twitter on Thursday, quote, The burning of the jersey thing is getting ridiculous now. The man was traded, what do you not understand, and played in a game after his sister's tragic death. That's right, LeBron. I am, yes, burning the jersey burning. So, burn. Double burn. Burn. So 
after all that burning, it's time to celebrate some remarkable women in sports this week with our Badass Woman of the Week segment. This week, our Badass Honorable Mentions go out to San Francisco 49ers assistant coach Katie Sowers, who is not only just the second full-time female assistant coach in NFL history, but also the first openly LGBTQ coach in the league. Allie Raisman, gold medal gymnast who spoke out strongly against the USA Gymnastics sexual abuse cover-up this week. And from listener Shane Thomas, the women from the final of the Rugby Union World Cup between England and New Zealand. Thomas says this was the best women's Rugby Union World Cup final in the tourney's history, going to New Zealand, who beat England 41-32. to And now, Brenda, please tell us who this week's badass women are. It is my pleasure to announce that the WNBA team, the LA Sparks, are badass women of the week because of their amazing video. (laughs) And it's a video that's since been taken down, but it was in response Mm. to a barrage of internet trolling. They released a two-part music video on their Instagram account. And basically it features Sparks players and a couple of WESPN writers dancing to Beyonce's Sorry, by which they mean they are anything but sorry for being talented, strong, and confident athletes. These terribly sexist tweets appear as the camera pans on them. And so so you get this you get this dialogue happening. And really what's wonderful is there's no sexist snag here. There's no effort to fit each player into a marketable mode to fem them up for male consumption, which is something we've seen time and time again. Instead, it's classy, it's funny, and it's feminist all at once. And on Burn It All Down, it just lifted us up this week. So badass Women of the Week award goes to the LA Sparks. All right. And to round out this episode, let's talk about what's good in our worlds this week. Lindsay, tell us what's good with you. Well, I've done a lot of sleeping this weekend, so that's good. <laughs> but, All um, right. I mean, the obvious answer is it's U.S. Open time, but I'm going to save that. And I'm just going to say I've been really excited about these rallies for Colin Kaepernick that have been happening this week. We saw one, a couple at NFL headquarters, and there was one in Atlanta where hundreds of supporters showed up with signs offering their support to him. You also had an NYPD Kaepernick rally last weekend, and that was really powerful. About 100 NYPD officers, mostly minority officers, speaking up in support of Colin Kaepernick. And it just makes me happy to see his supporters mobilizing as much as his haters. I think we've talked on this show before about how it might seem pointless. It might seem like it's not doing anything, but it does matter to speak up, to call these owners, to make your voices heard if you want him back in the NFL. I'm not saying it's going to work, but it's certainly worth a shot. Yes. I love it too. Brenda, what's good with you? Well, there's no secret I love Barcelona. And I may be the only person happy about their two big transfers this year. So Osmain Dembele and Paulinho. And a lot of people started to social media as soon as these as these came into play, sort of, you know, whining about how they were the wrong choices and it's going to move Messi to center and he won't be able to play on the left. I mean, blah, 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 blah. These are so exciting trades, in my opinion. So I, I'm really excited to see them integrate this week. There's something special about Luis Suarez 
having to work it out with a player of color for me as well because of his history. So I'm really looking forward to seeing both of these guys integrate. I think they're really exciting players. I learned so much from you, Brenda. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So like Lindsay, I'm also looking forward to the U.S. Open. And now I'm looking forward to Sharapova Halep (laughs) on Monday night. I just love, you know, the tennis tournament that's in our time zone. Well, you know, close enough to me. And it's fun to be able to watch that tennis right before you go to bed. I've also recently started in the the last season of the clone drama Orphan Black, starring the amazing Tatiana Maslany. And then I'm also watching the first season of the comedy The Good Place, which stars the amazing Kristen Bell. And these two shows have just been lovely in the midst of all of the stuff going on in the world. It's so, definitely the last season, Jess, of Orphan Black. Can I ask Oh, yeah, the series finale. Yeah, the series finale has happened. And so I've worked really hard not to be spoiled. Uh, but I've heard it's perfect. So I'm uh, really excited to get there. We hope in the midst of all the bullshit in the world right now, you two are finding the good in your world. And all of our Texas listeners, stay safe. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you for joining us. You can find Burn It All Down on Facebook and Twitter. If you want to subscribe to Burn It All Down, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, aka iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. Important announcement. Burn It All Down now has transcripts for our episodes. You can find them and links for each episode on our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You can also contact us at the site to give us feedback. We'd love to hear from you. And if you enjoyed this week's show, we'd love if you'd share this episode with friends on social media. And please, rate the show at whichever place you listen to it. The ratings help us reach new listeners who need this feminist sports podcast but don't yet know it exists. Please take some time to check out our GoFundMe page and consider making a small donation. We really want to improve this podcast and make it a sustainable endeavor. We're really grateful to everyone who has contributed so far. That's it for Burn It All Down. For Brenda Elsie and Lindsay Gibbs, I'm Jessica Luther. Until next week. Hey.